I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Uh, okay, so uh, 11 tracks. Uh, so side one starts with Where the Streets Have No Name. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. With or without you. Bullet the blue sky. Running to stand still. And side two starts with Red Hill Mining Town. In God's Country. Trip Through Your Wires. One Tree Hill. Exit. And the album closes out with Mothers of the Disappeared. Uh, coming in uh, 50 minutes. A uh, pretty good length for an album. A lot of them were shorter than that at the time. Uh, we've discussed a lot, 40, 45 minutes, stuff like that. So not so bad. I don't know where to start here, guys, in terms of talking about these songs, because they're all very good. There's, I don't think there's really one or two that I don't want to listen to. <laughs> um, some, al- some albums, you know, you skip one or two, even the good ones, right? But this is this is pretty packed. Uh, Phil, do you, have a, do you have a favorite at this point? Or is there one that still kind of calls out to you when you listen to it? Huh. It's similar to the uh, Octoon Baby thing, like I'll, I'll bounce back and forth between different songs. At this point in time, it's it probably comes down to between running to stand still and one tree hill for me. Oh wow, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the singles like "With or Without You," "Still in Found Streets." Like those things are great, but yeah, running to stand still and one tree hill. I like those. How many of these songs do you think uh, we jammed with in your living room? All eleven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let me just. I think we skipped Red Hill Mining Town. Trip through your wires. Yeah. So nine of the eleven. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's that's good to know. Um, yeah, there's a lot a lot that pulls me in still from this list. Uh, I actually really like Red Hill Mining Town. Uh, I have this very vivid memory, and this is a strange memory, of playing ping pong in my basement with my sister Felicia. Um, with this album on, 
and having this moment in time where the ping pong ball was bouncing back and forth in perfect timing with Red Hill Mining Town. And we sort of finished the song and the ball sort of like, you know, bounced away and looked at each other and we're like, did that just happen? <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know why I keep that memory in my head. It was uh, a surreal moment where real life was matching up with recorded audio in a, in a really interesting kind of way. That was actually my favorite song from the last tour. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. What made it stand out? So a couple things. They they had never played that song on tour before, uh, or before 2017, and I'm not sure why. It's right up there with Acrobat in terms of songs not getting played. So that was one interesting thing. Like I had never seen it before, but just with the way they did it with the horn section. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the tour, but they had a video with with horns with these people playing, obviously synced up with the band, and and yeah, it was just it was a very interesting composition that I, I didn't really see it coming to be honest, and it actually made me like the song quite a bit more than the studio version. Yeah, because there's no horns on the original track, right? That's right. Interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. So for all the listeners out there... Yeah, I was not at that tour, but it's making me want to go and find some some video footage, some bootleg YouTube videos of uh, mm-hmm. that particular song. Yeah, wow. for sure. They're out there. I've watched them, actually. And it's it, it, you'll see exactly what I mean when you see the video. I made a note that I really liked how stripped down that song is considering it starts the second side mm-hmm. you know there's not the the delay echo on the guitar um, it's not fancy or flashy like some of the other songs it's very stripped down and then you jump into In God's Country which is very upbeat and has a lot of delay uh, it's almost like you need after Running to Sand Still which is pretty somber song and fairly serious mm-hmm. um, in its content um, and the story behind it as well mm-hmm. uh, it's like you need one more track before you get back into something <laughs> you need some space to digest it you gotta you flip the disc over you got one more that's got a bit of a build up and then we get into something really uh, upbeat in God's country mm-hmm. um, do you guys know the story Phil do you know the story behind Running to Stand Still uh, like with drug use in Dublin? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess Seven Towers is supposed to represent the seven blocks or, or whatever in Dublin where a lot of drug use was happening. Um, I kind of forget the details at this point, to be honest, but pretty, pretty sure some, some people died. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of an epidemic. Yeah, yeah just in, in general, and I think it, it points to unless you really dig into it and especially i mean we've talked about this in the past or i've had a conversation with somebody um about you know bullet the blue sky the the american crowds absolutely loved that tune and it was uh, a criticism of america mm-hmm. and of the whole system and of money and greed and all those things mm-hmm. um and for a lot of these tunes unless you kind of dig deep or maybe even do some research they they can go unnoticed but behind a lot of them are some fairly serious issues Mm -hmm. we're finding that a lot on a lot of these iconic albums not only are they iconic for the band and the music but they tackle some serious issues and i think that that 
is something that makes an album or a song last longer. There has to be meaning behind it. We've already talked about that in yeah. the intentionality of, of the tours and of the artwork. Uh, when there's meaning behind something, it lasts longer because people can relate to it. And I'm seeing that uh, doing a little more digging into the meaning of some of these songs that uh, they were really, they were going quite deep and Bono has never been one to just do something flippantly. Uh, that's really become very clear to me again in a new light researching these songs. So that was, uh, you know, s- sobering to learn about it, but also, you know, very meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel myself kind of conflicted there. I listened to Sunday Bloody Sunday a lot of times before I ever realized that it was an, about an actual incident. And and right. so I guess I, I'm left feeling like, you know, okay, so fine, you put you put a deeper meaning into a song, but it's also possible to be a superficial fan and never get there. Um, in some ways, I, I, I think given how prophetic Bono can be when he's just talking, I have a bit of a longing sometimes for his music to actually be more prophetic. Um, I know there have been moments where the band has sort of had to try and reel him in. Um, and, you know, he also gets out on stage during live shows and, and gets a bit more preachy, you know, on the uh, interludes between songs. But um, as someone who works in justice kinds of spaces, I, I find myself wanting Bono to be uh, a bit more clear when he's talking about some of these things uh, so that people don't have the, the choice to just skip over it or to, to just hum along to this lovely song not really knowing what's going on. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe that's being too harsh. I know, I know not everyone is called to be a prophet, but, but Bono certainly is. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's the band. Maybe it's the band telling him like, you know, we're not going to sell any, any records if you be as political as you want to be. Um, and so it's a bit, it remains a bit more hidden. I remember, I don't know if I read it or watched an interview, but I think it might've been, atomic bomb if not that then it would have been 360 tour where the band and bono actually had to sit down and talk out just how much not that they would put up with but how much bono could go go off on his tangents for lack of a better <laughs> phrase and how much time he could spend on on whatever issue it was that he wanted to to talk about that that night or more to the point that tour, like you usually would have a theme. And so there's a recognition by the band that, yeah, like part of, part of what we're talking about here is, is who we are. And like, this is important to us and we've been like this forever. But part of it was also a recognition that people are at a rock and roll concert. Yeah. Like they want to be entertained. Yep. (laughs) I don't, I'm fine with a lot of what he says, but I don't want to go to a, two hour show and have him preach at me for 45 minutes. <laughs> That's not why I spent my money. That's true. I want to hear him sing for probably an hour 55. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, well, I don't think I want him to preach more either when I see them. I think I just want some more, uh, grounding in the words that he's singing. And, and maybe that's just selfish. Maybe that's just me wanting, a little bit. More it might be hard with the way Edge plays guitar. That's that's possible. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think 
if you're a hardcore fan, you're probably buying the, you know, making of Joshua Tree album or um, a book that, where they talk about the the songs. And you are going a little deeper and you are probably eventually getting to the story of Sunday Bloody Sunday and and what went on there. Um, so maybe it maybe it eventually happens regardless. Uh, but yeah, uh, maybe it's just a grumpy tangent for uh, a moment in time where I'm frustrated with politics in general. <laughs> Sounds like a different podcast. <laughs> uh, sometimes. <laughs> Back to running to standstill, man, as a, a new guitar player who is just barely able to move from chord to chord, having uh, verses with two chords and a chorus with two chords meant that this was one of the one of my favorite songs to play early on because it was just like GCD, I think, or, or maybe uh-huh. an A in there somewhere too, uh, but pretty simple to just go back and forth between two chords and get comfortable uh, with those movements. Uh, so I think I probably spent a lot of time just uh, with that very quiet song on in the background, learning to switch between two chords. Is that the song that you literally learned to play guitar to? No, I don't think so. Uh, but it was definitely in the early repertoire. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> See, for me, it would have been Desire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was one of my first ones. Um, you know, just a few really mm-hmm. easy open chords. We've talked a couple of times about when music becomes bigger than the band even. And uh, I'm thinking about like, uh, there's a Ross and Rachel breakup scene on Friends where Ross calls into the radio station and requests with or without you. The next one's dedicated to Rachel from Ross. Rachel, he wants you to know he's deeply sorry for what he did and he hopes you can find it in your heart to forgive him. You know, when something that's like, (laughs) you know, one of the biggest sitcoms of all time is featuring your music in the background, you've kind of become bigger than, than anything. Um, and I think this music, Mike, you said earlier, you know, all these songs sort of feel like they just fit into the background of our lives. Um, I think they're, they're present in a whole lot of different spaces just because of how big this album was. It's funny you went with the friends reference. Yeah. Uh, we've just gotten a call from Rachel and she told us what Ross did. It's pretty appalling. And Ross, if you're listening, I don't want to play your song anymore. I remember it with the uh, that movie Blowing Away. Oh. Jeff Bridges. Huh. Dennis Hopper, I think. <laughs> Obviously a good one if you guys are remembering it. <laughs> sure, you sure that wasn't Speed? Oh, it was Keanu. Oh, that was Jeff Daniels. <laughs> Got my Jeff's mixed up. I don't no, I don't think I saw Blown Away. <laughs> um, Another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of that going around. Um, I will note that uh, "Where the Streets Have No Name" is my wife's favorite hmm. U2 song, and of course the the story uh, behind it is is intriguing. Like you mean the making of well, what it's a, what the lyrics are about? Oh, I see. Like it's about. Okay. I can't remember what country they were visiting i'm just trying to ethiopia yeah ethiopia yeah ethiopia that's right and that there were you know just these rows and rows of of 
huts and tents and people living in poverty and there were all sorts of streets but they had no names because it was mm-hmm. just full of poverty and it was a place uh, but it was like they were meaningless and anonymous to the rest of the world mm-hmm. so and that kind of inspired inspired that song so I, I like that story mm-hmm. it's uh it's always interesting to me to think about which songs ended up being singles um this is an album with a number of singles uh with or without you was the first one to be released interesting that that kind of more of a, a slower love ballad ends up being the one that they really try and push the album with and then we get i still haven't found what i'm looking for where the streets have no name in god's country which also doesn't strike me necessarily as a song that i would think of as a, a single and then one tree hill um which i think got a limited release i don't think that was necessarily an american I think it was, release, yeah but... just new zealand i think okay maybe. <laughs> that's interesting um so yeah about half the songs end up getting uh significant radio play and i think in you know later in life i guess bullet the blue sky becomes a, a fan favorite that i think still gets a lot of radio play on on certain sort of classic rock stations that uh mm-hmm wasn't actually a single but but gets played a lot with or without you the uh the band's manager at the time paul mcginnis he didn't want to release it as a single at all and i think it was gavin friday that basically told him we got to do this <laughs> and sorry gavin friday being a f- friend of the band um so they released it obviously and mcginnis had to go back after the fact and say well yeah no, i, I think you're probably <laughs> right that worked out okay for us <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> They're not necessarily a band that's successful always with picking the right first single. It's true. Um, <laughs> and I think that's something that bands struggle with in general, but fans will latch on to uh, songs later on and it will rise to the top uh, in terms of that. Do you know what the reason was for why he didn't want it to be a single, Phil? I, I don't remember that. But if you think about it, with or without you, like it's it's hard now because we've heard it so many times and we all love the song, but it's not really your prototypical single. No, like no, not at all. Streets no. would be for sure off that album. Wow. I would have gone. I probably would have gone more up tempo, so I would have gone Streets or Bullet. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but with or without you, even in God's Country, I, I would have been tempted to put that out on the radio. I, there's lots of good sounds it moves quick um yeah that one's not bad and i i think that logic makes sense it's just that song happens to be my least favorite on the album oh (laughs) that's okay that's all right you know what it's a safe space here but i still love that song that just tells you what i think with the other songs exactly right (laughs) i still love it even though it's really yeah that's good I love all my children, Mike. <laughs> I said that uh, uh, recently about the two ice cream places in town. And, uh, <laughs> someone gave me a really strange look. <laughs> um, I want to. I want to imagine that you're a uh, a person, uh, you know, on clergy or even a layperson in a Mennonite church in rural Ontario in 1987. And they play, they put, a, they play for you exit from the Joshua tree. And they tell you that in 10 years, a bunch of youth are going to be playing it from the pulpit uh, at a, a youth night <laughs> and just kind of see, see the reaction <laughs> of, uh, and then that actually happened that 
you guys from the farming exit, you know, out of, out of youth overnight. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to own being part of that. <laughs> I have no recollection of that. <laughs> uh, that was a good one. You may have been wearing a wig. Maybe it wasn't actually you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but pretty pretty wild to think that it was not long even before that that pianos were forbidden in that church and that there we are playing U2. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And not even a, a churchy U2 song. I think we actually used the pulpit mic because we didn't have enough mics to go around. So we really <laughs> literally were in the pulpit. Uh, one of us at least. That's that's good. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's not the uh, the worst song we played from that pulpit, <laughs> given that we were in a church. <laughs> Maybe with an uh, audience. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> you're probably right, but that's that's one from this album that sticks out. <laughs> anything else, guys? Any other comments on? I mean, I know we could probably go on for hours, but anything else uh, before we kind of move towards the end? Anything else that sticks out in general? It, um, it's been recurring to me just in the last couple of days as I've gone back to this album in pre- preparation for this podcast, how much my specific calling to ministry um, draws on a sense of searching that I think was probably first introduced to me, not necessarily by the church, but by Bono, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, I don't think that I'm still searching for something I haven't found, but but I think I walk with students who are searching constantly for something they haven't found yet. And I love being in that place. I'm not terribly interested in faith or religion or politics even that feels like it has all the answers. And I wonder how much of that part of my DNA was like molded first probably by my parents, but also by um, this sort of prophetic song that is in the middle of one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, and so, yeah, I was, you know, it came on this week and I got kind of a smile on my face, like, Oh, there's some, some little piece of me that's always been, um, comfortable in spaces where people are searching. And I love that. So yeah, it's just a (laughs) small anecdotal segue about my (laughs) story of my life. Put that in your next sermon there, bud. (laughs) Okay. I'll try. (laughs) Man, I don't want to follow that. So I'll just take a, I'll just take a pass. <laughs> Hard pass. No, I was just going to bring up Mothers of the Disappeared. Please um, do. It's Most people don't know that track unless you're a, a real big fan of the album. It's, it's the last track on the album. Underrated, in my opinion. A lot of silence even to get to it, right? It's almost a hidden yes. track. It's not really, but yeah. But in a way, it is. Um, I won't go into the whole backstory of, of what the song's about. People can do read that on their own, but I think that's a really, really good song. And they obviously never play it live up until you know this last tour. And getting to hear it live was it was pretty good. It was it was a bit of a highlight of the show for me. And I, I get it. Like I'm a guy that's seen the band many, many times, so I've seen the hits numerous times. So to hear something like that's a little bit uh, that's kind of unique. It's a haunting track. It, it's really beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. it, For sure. It's not a song that immediately makes me think you too, 
Um, and I kind of like it for that reason. Like it feels a little bit outside their comfort zone, mm -hmm. but I really like it. It sounds like he's singing from another room. Like, I don't know what kind of echo effect is on his voice, but it, it, he sounds distant from the mic. Um, I like I like what they've created there. The guitar sounds distant from the guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Those guys have some, they have a real ability to, they just know how to end albums. Like, all <laughs> that you can't leave behind, ending it with grace. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. They just know what they're doing. Except for an album, one of my favorites is uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. And depending on which version you got, had a different ending track. Doesn't that which one, one end with, with Yahweh? I've got Yahweh. Yeah. That's I think mine is the bonus track with the DVD that ends with Fast Cars. Oh, yeah. No, that ruins it. <laughs> it needs to end with Yahweh. It's yeah, true. that's a great ending track. Should we say a word about uh, the Canadian content that we've got here? Our friend Daniel Lanois. We haven't talked about those people at all, have we? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about Mike and I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> Uh, he's still got the paperwork, Phil. Does he? Does he, like? he, oh, does. he does. It's written on his heart. Yeah. It's in there. Uh, um, yeah, Daniel Lanois. So, you know, there's a unfortunate lack of Canadian content on this uh, list. Unless you count um, uh, the band backing up Bob Dylan in a couple of the earlier albums. It takes until uh, Joni Mitchell at number 30. Is that right, Mike? Uh, before we get our first Canadian artist. So when we can sneak in Daniel Lanois yeah. here on, on this album, that, that makes our, uh, our maple pride uh, shine just a little bit here. Um, he's been a pretty massive part of this band for, for most of their career. Is that right? I think he and Brian uh, Eno came across for Unforgettable Fire. Okay. So, and I don't know if they've been on every album since then, but yeah, I mean, your statement's true. Occasionally, he'll he'll even come on stage and play with them, depending on if he's I've around. seen it. Yeah. Yeah, he played, he came up on stage to play the final song of the night, and they played Bad. Oh. Yeah, it was fantastic. Hmm. What tour was that, Phil? That would have been, oh boy, that might have been atomic bomb okay okay and that's probably my favorite u2 song so it was a good time if they had to claim a, a fifth member he might be he might be it huh in terms mm -hmm. of the influence mm -hmm. he has had on their sound and um and structure we were also born on the same Wait. day september 19th so um even though i've never met him and don't really know too much about the music he's created on his own <laughs> uh, i feel like there's got to be some kind of kindred spirit connection there <laughs> I think that um, both of them came back for No Line on the Horizon. Um, and I believe there was a lot of excitement um, because of that, because it's like, yes, that's right. And Steve Lillywhite. So because, you know, they hadn't been together, the two of them, since the Joshua Tree, there was kind of excitement that, you know, it was going to be that album again, especially because Atomic Bomb, was very successful did very well mm -hmm. um, and i don't think no line did quite as well as the other it was album. Too bad. it was a great album it, was, it is a good album it's a really good album um and 
yeah, so I think they joined again. It was probably very nostalgic for all of them too. Um, and I was introduced more to Brian Eno in university because he's considered by many to be the father of uh, modern ambient music. And mm-hmm. I had a roommate who was really into ambient music, which is again, a whole nother podcast, uh, <laughs> m- maybe one that I won't be involved in, but, uh, I heard a lot some of his, some of his solo ambient stuff. And that's like just a very mm. different thing altogether, but you can hear a lot of that in, a lot of U2's music, especially the Joshua Tree, and he was a big part of producing a lot of Coldplay's albums, and I hear a lot of similarities in the spaces between mm. the music, the spaces between the uh, the guitars and the choruses. You hear a lot of these atmospheric sounds, um, and I can hear a lot of both U2 and Brian Eno's influence on, on some of those Coldplay albums, especially the earlier ones before it was more kind of um, kind of a lot of the dancey sounds in in more than more recent ones. Um, you can hear that influence from Brian Eno on both those styles. So, yeah, I can't believe we hadn't talked about them yet. That's important. I remember when I used to fix elevators, I was really into ambient music. <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut that one out. Cut that one out. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. There's a great documentary called It Might Get Loud, um, which... Primarily right. focuses on Jack White, who I kind of find annoying, but um, so true. <laughs> but the Edge plays so a prominent role as well, kind of dissecting a lot of great guitar work from you know the last fifty years of rock and roll, and uh, and I think he pulls out a couple of tapes from early Joshua Tree recording sessions and kind of shows how he layered some of the sounds and in this album and. Um, while I was listening this week, it made me want to go back and revisit that that documentary. I drive everyone crazy. I drive myself totally crazy trying to get the sound that I can hear in my head to come out of the speakers. It's my voice. That is my voice. What's coming out of the speaker. Jimmy Page as well. Yeah. Jimmy Page, The Edge, and Jack White, kind of three different generations of innovative guitarists. So we ask a few follow-up questions here, and one of them we've already talked about. The first one is, is this album still relevant? I think the answer is unanimous uh, with a big yes. Um, and, I mean, you still hear these songs everywhere. Um I think that the songs themselves are timeless even before you kind of delve into the kind of sonic and lyrical nuances contained within all of them. So I think it's definitely relevant. And I think that you could play this in any, any rock club today. Uh, most, you know, if it's eighties, nineties radio or rock radio, uh, they would still fit in very well. So Unless you guys have have anything to add to that, I think I think it's very obvious. The first uh, Rolling Stone greatest albums list came out in two thousand and three, as we've mentioned many times before. I was in my uh, third year of college, thereabouts, and was really really disappointed by where this album fell. I I remember being Mm. both pleased that there were five U two albums on the list, and also just like. Are you kidding me? It's all the way down at 27. Um, 
and I think I still have some some bitterness a little bit in, in that sense too. Like I really do think that this is perhaps one of the greatest albums ever put together, and uh, and I think it's still relevant even though we're now um, you know more than thirty years after its after its release. They're still touring it, and people are still going to the shows to to hear it perform live. Um, and I don't think it's all people who are like in their sixties going to, to, you know, relive their twenties or something like that. Um, I think it's, it's resonated with generations in the years since then. And, uh, it's still very relevant in my mind. We talk about the sound sometimes something's, you know, memorable and nostalgic, and iconic, but it sounds dated. How, how do you feel about the sound? How does the sound hold up, um, in terms of it? kind of being dated or still fitting in with what we listen to now? Yeah, it, I, I can go either, either way on this. Like it doesn't sound like today's music. Uh, that's for certain. And depending on your perspective, maybe that's a good thing, but it also doesn't sound like most of the eighties music that was put out at the time. And, you know, the, I don't know who am I thinking of pet shop boys, like yeah. all that type of stuff. Yeah. It, it, like that was kind of the signature sound and you two didn't sound like that. And they for sure didn't sound like white snake or Bon Jovi or, or poison or any of those bands. Right. Um, it was a unique sound and there's, there's only a few bands that there's a lot of popular bands from the eighties, but there's only a few, I think that, actually had a unique sound to themselves. And I think U2 would be one of them and probably GNR would be another. I'm sure there's others, but so in that sense, it, uh, it, it holds up rather well because I don't think you want to get lumped in with, with the rest of the decade, especially <laughs> if that decade is the eighties. Yeah. I mean, there's some interesting moments in time where we try and celebrate the eighties and we pull music in to, to sort of, uh, you know, create a memory of what that decade was like. U2 is almost never featured in those things. Mm-hmm. Remembering the eighties. Cause they, exactly. they don't make you think of the eighties when you, when you hear it, the sound, exactly. the sound is a little dated. Like I think especially some of the echo and effects just wouldn't be used today in pop music, but it doesn't sound like the eighties. Like it, it sounds, it sounds dated from some other, I don't know what era. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's a testament to the quality of the, the artwork that they've created in that it's hard to place in time. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I think you said what I was trying to say, but you did it better. <laughs> I think especially the edge, but the whole band, they were ahead of their time and he created something new with this, with using the digital delay like that. I, I don't think I, have enough knowledge to say he was the only one or the first, but he was the first to make it popular. That's for sure. And I think you're going to hear that. I mean, when I was playing a lot of uh, church worship music in the, in the mid two thousands, um, any of the very popular artists who were releasing music worldwide that was getting played at every evangelical church, you know, guys like Chris Tomlin and a lot of other British acts, they were all using digital delay in the 2000s, every single one of them, every single song. And I'm not exaggerating. And I think that you saw that not only in that genre, um, but also in the mid 2000s decade, the first decade of the 2000s, you see a lot of bands weaving that back in as we're getting away from the, 
the dance and electronics of the nineties and back into some of the more, um, I don't want to say acoustic, but more kind of guitar based bands, you know, into bands like the strokes and the hype and other bands like that from Britain in the late two thousands are using a lot of these same sounds again. And I think maybe if, maybe not today, but more a few years ago, because now we've got even more of a, more of a folk sound going on, especially with bands who are popular in the last few years, like Mumford and Sons, um, and Avid Brothers, yeah, Avid Brothers, but the other one, uh, who does Ophelia? What's the name oh, of that band? Uh, the Lumineers. Whoa, we got a fourth person partner. in the room. <laughs> Actually, she's been feeding me all the answers the whole time. Wow. <laughs> um, Wish I had thought of that. Yeah, it's a good idea, right? <laughs> good to know that there's a replacement co-host waiting if I ever need one. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! You gotta cut that out. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that those sounds are still all used. And because, and another one of our guests had said this, when you have a type of music where we still use the same instruments, number one, and in the same way, and some of the same technology, it's always going to stay current and not Mm -hmm. feel dated. You know, you don't hear as much uh, like lead flute on uh, heavy rock metal bands anymore. So Jethro Tull is Mm -hmm. sounds very dated, Uh, but (laughs) um, this you hear a lot. So, it fits in still. So I think Phil, yeah, I think you got to, I think you're right that, you know, it different and it stands out and some of it maybe sounds dated, but I think a lot of it is still used and bands are still new bands are still coming back to this sound. Um, I think, and, and it was so innovative, like so new. They're still trying, guys are still trying to copy what he did mm-hmm. um, with the guitar and the sounds and the technology has changed and it's gotten better and easier to use because that was, I've seen guys show me how to use that same equipment and how to create that timing. And it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and some of them you can, you can tap it out or some of them you have to turn the dials to get exact and everyone has to be playing in the timing that matches that. It's actually a, he uses a lot of time, a um, dotted eighth note triplet. I think that he uses and puts in or dotted or sorry, dotted quarter note um, that he puts in uh, in the, the four, four time that gives it that effect. <laughs> anyways, don't need to get in all the technical stuff, but um, yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I'll stop now. I'll talk too much. Uh, well, so the question that began this, uh, amazing ship of uh, the Sound Logic podcast is: Was it Sound Logic for the Rolling <laughs> Stone magazine to have this album at number twenty-seven? I've already sort of showed my hand there. I think <laughs> my twenty-five-year-old self was outraged that it was at twenty-seven. Um, I don't think I have quite as much outrage of its placement this far into our project, but I definitely think it could be higher and. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how to squish it into my top 10 of the albums that we've gone through so far. Um, <laughs> what about the, what about the two of you? Do you think this should be, is it an appropriate ranking to have it at number 27? Should it be higher or lower? Well, Phil, I don't know how familiar you are, familiar you are with the rest of the list. Um, and so you kind of have to know what's there, but um, you know, I imagine you would put it a little higher. I'm, I'm guessing I would. I don't know the list very well, to be honest. Uh, I, I would say even, 
and Ben, I don't remember reading it when it came out as you did. Maybe someone had a copy and I breezed through it. But when I looked at it and start, so when we started doing this and kind of breezed through it and saw it there, I too immediately went, well, that seems a little low. Like it, it's certainly for the, for the, I think I'd say okay. it should be between 10 and 20, probably between 10 and 15. And if you can take, if, if really the, the base of this list, most of it is in the sixties, seventies and eighties. There's a little bit before there's a little bit in the nineties, but most of it's there. And if you take kind of the top four or five albums from each of those three decades, there's no way that the Joshua tree sits outside the top five in the eighties in rock. It is one of those majorly iconic and influential and successful albums. So if it's, one of the top five albums from one of those three decades, it's got to be 15 or higher. <laughs> That's a very mathematic description of how my brain works oh, in making that decision. But uh, I think if it's 27, it's got to be at least 10 slots higher. I would put it somewhere between 10 and 15. Um, realistically, yeah. just, just looking at everything else that's around there too. I, I, I think it's too iconic to be where it is looking at some of the other ones we've discussed, but it is going to be a chore when we do our, when we do our re-ranking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phil, you got to tune in for the re-ranking because, uh, things get real, things get real very quickly. Yeah. I mean, if you guys <laughs> need some more useless anecdotes, just let me know. We love that Always. stuff. So you've alluded a couple of times to Octune maybe, maybe being your favorite U2 album. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess if you're thinking Joshua Tree deserves to be a bit higher, Octune maybe should be much, much higher into the uh, the grand scheme of things. Is that accurate to say? Like, I, <laughs> what, How are we d- defining what should be number one? Like, What's the parameters? Okay, Octoon Baby is my favorite album of all time, but I don't know if that necessarily places it number one. Like, is it the most influential album of all time? Well, probably not. You probably have to give the Beatles that honor, um, yeah. or even even Elvis, or I don't know, somebody that came before them. So it, it just depends on how you want to how you want to look at it. And this lies the crux of our whole podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to the club. And we've, we've in the last few episodes, we've talked about, you know, the method. Um, I, I mean, th- everything is subjective, right? It, there's no scientific to what is the greatest in terms of something like music where everyone feels something different when they hear it. Um, but, I mean, basically, they took over 200 people in the industry, critics, producers, artists, uh, very well-known artists, you know, some that are on this list, and they ranked their top 50 albums. And then they took that and assigned numerical values to what they ranked number one, two, so on and so forth. And then added those all up and that's how they got the list. So it was very mathematical once they got those contributions from those 200 plus people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that I know when they revised it in 2012, they, took that initial list and then some other things and kind of blended them together. But for the initial list, I, I don't know if once they got those results and tabulated them that they really mess with them at all. I think they just took that. So I'm sure you could look at it after, you know, getting all that data and plug in and go, ah, well, you know, they said this, but really this one should be higher. I think they just mm-hmm. left it. Um, and I mean, how else do you, you, you could spend your entire life 
trying to figure out what should be where. Um, but, uh, I mean, at very least, we hope that you'll join us again when we get there. <laughs> we can just have angry tirade after angry tirade about how it should be higher. <laughs> you know, I, I read, uh, or no, I, I didn't read. I took a class in university research methods, which is basically like how people put together surveys and, and then the yeah. research. And so I learned from that, not that I'm an expert on it, but you have to be very careful how you phrase a question mm. to somebody because you can get a very, you can get a very different response than maybe what you were anticipating. And so with these types of surveys, like you almost would have to see like what questions were, were the participants given? Like we, we don't really know why they ranked the, mm-hmm. these artists or these albums the way they did. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why we're going to spend about 12 years talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well then problem solved. <laughs> If you thought our childhood was full of too much rambling for no purpose, yeah, tune in. That's what this podcast is really about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one thing that we like to to do at the end before we sign off and to give our listeners something to look into, uh, do you have, Phil, a favorite cover of a song from this album? I know that many bands have covered these songs. Is there one that stands out to you? Um that you can think of off the top of your head? Well, Ben, Steve, Ed, and I covered Exit in about 1999. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. Do we still have a tape of that? Because I'll put it on in the background. Let me leave that one with me. Okay. I'll take a oh, while. Wow. I'll do some digging. <laughs> yes, please. The only cover I can think of, and it's not a true cover, um, Muse did Streets. They had Edge play the guitar on it, so it's they kind of cheated. But that one, <laughs> pretty good because the lead singer, I, cool. I find him quite talented, and it was an interesting, uh, interesting take on that song that he put together. That's interesting that you uh, that you like Muse because I've always felt that he reminds me of Bono the way he sings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which is actually a criticism I have of the band. But we won't go there. That's, <laughs> That's a different podcast. Different podcast. Oh, Can't it's wait till we podcast. get to talk about um, news. Yeah. Um, I don't think they come up there, bud. <laughs> I'm crossing my fingers to that 2023 list. to add them. I, no. I think that okay. our, uh, our college years coinciding with the uh, advent of uh, streaming music, well, or at least digital music, um, it was also a moment in time where I started to listen to a bunch of random stuff that I probably wouldn't have actually bought off the shelf, but because it was like out there on the internet, I would, I would consume it. And I remember a moment in time where I just loved those like tribute albums where like an orchestra or a, right. someone with a piano or a folk group would do a tribute to U2. And uh, I probably listened to every hacky uh, U2 tribute album out there for a moment of my life where I just thought it was great to have like all my favorite songs on piano so I could just have it on this background music and, and, and you know, a nice party or uh, uh, all the songs folk versions so that I could, you know, get a little bit uh, twangy with my, my favorite U2 songs. Um, and they were big enough, of course, that they got lots of those albums directed their way. Uh, you had another idea, though, Mike, for uh, well, for a cover. 
and it was one that we shared. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm trying not to feel embarrassed, but um, you know, especially in the late to uh, the end of high school and being university, and I went to a Bible college, so we were always trying to find Christian music because sometimes it was hard to find music that sounded good and also fit in with our belief system at the same time um, because there were periods where there wasn't a lot of good quote Christian music but one band that I got into as I got into some of the hard rock was a band called P.O.D. and I have the CD on my shelf uh, to this day they did a cover of Bullet the Blue Sky which at the time I absolutely loved because they they did it kind of in that uh, kind of hard rock style um Listening back to it now, it doesn't really hold up <laughs> in the same way. But um, that, as soon as I thought about you know favorite cover, that's one that I really like. And I, I've always really, really liked the edginess of that song um, in general. I think that it's so it's so heavy. It's very heavy for for this album. Um, it's got a very heavy feel. So it was cool to hear someone who plays heavy music take that and, and make it even a little heavier so yeah bold the blue sky by pod you can uh can't wait to dust that one off yeah that's a good one <laughs> phil that's probably one of your favorites too right oh 110 <laughs> right on <laughs> oh hey man we've really appreciated having you philly uh it was great to go down memory lane with some of this stuff and um you were really uh, our first and only choice if we were going to be talking about you two and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us other guests have said no you did not and we appreciate you for doing that <laughs> thanks for having me it's a it's fun to talk about it absolutely a real pleasure yeah thanks phil that was that was great and uh we hope you'll join us when we get to octon baby and we hope that you, listener, will join us again next week when we discuss our next album, which is number 28. It's called Who's Next by The Who. Who? Uh, the Who. Oh. oh, The Who. Oh, I missed that part. The Who. Yeah. <laughs> the Who. Oh. Who. Who's next? Phil, I'm waiting for a guess who uh, joke. <laughs> or, or what's on second is next. Oh, geez. Third base. Oh. <laughs> 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 It's going to be great. Thanks, guys. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.